All right, so we've come to lesson eight in our study of Revelation. And if you remember, we passed over a few verses in chapter six, verses 12 through 17. And I said I would begin this week by identifying some of the terminology in the passage. And what we're going to find is that all of these things were also spoken of in the prophets. And they have a symbolic meaning. So let me start out by saying that what we'll read in these verses is telling us that the earth is changing. The world is changing. The entire universe is changing. There's a new rule coming, and it is the rule of God. When we read of mountains and hills, they're high places where anciently the peoples worshipped. And we're seeing that they're being brought low. Hills and mountains also represent governments because the governments sanctioned and defended the worship. And we find that they're being brought low as well. The things we read about in this section are the rulers of the age actually coming to an end. So let's look with verse 12. Let's start with that. And I saw when the Lamb opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as black as sackcloth made of goat's hair. The full moon became like blood. This very much sounds like what you would think of if we were looking at this as a historicist. This sounds like an earthquake caused by a volcano, doesn't it? And it would be familiar to those receiving this letter because in 79 Common Era, about 20 years before the writing of this letter, we have an eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And as we all know, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, we had the sky turn black, and the sky would be red for miles and miles around. And uh, I put a picture of it up here. You can see how dark it is when it erupts. And you can, if you get farther away, it will turn red. Isaiah speaks of this. He says, for the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Okay, so while this could be a volcano, of course, that's not what's being spoken of here. This is metaphorically speaking of a major disruption of the age and the rule. Isaiah says the heaven and the constellations won't give their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Remember, anciently they worshipped these things. They worshiped the sun. They worshiped the moon and the stars. They sought the stars for guidance in their lives and so forth. And we read much the same thing in the book of Yoel. It says in chapter 2, verse 10, Before them the land quakes, heaven trembles, sun and moon become dark, the stars withdraw their lights. And so what we're seeing is actually a dramatic change in the universe, in the earth and in the heavens. And where we get the true meaning of this, I think, is in the book of Ezekiel. It speaks of the destruction of the adversary of God. And remember, we looked at one of these verses earlier in Ezekiel. And Pharaoh was the adversary of God. It was a code name, so to speak, for the adversary of God. And this verse speaks of him as well. Chapter 32, verse 7. When I will extinguish you, Pharaoh... I will cover the sky, darken the stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give her light. I will darken all of the heavens' bright lights over you and set darkness on your land. It is a declaration of Adonai. And so with this verse, we find that these things are going to happen when the rule of Pharaoh or the rule of the adversary of God comes to an end. And what we're reading here 
is John's getting a vision of the changes that are going to happen in the heavens and the earth. And uh, Ezekiel tells us that it means changes in the rule of the earth, the ruler of this present evil age, and his rulers are coming to an end. In verse 13 we read, The stars of heaven fell to the earth like fig tree, drops unriped figs when shaken by a great wind. The heaven ripped apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from their places. Okay, so when we read of the stars falling from heaven and the heavens being rolled up like a scroll and the mountains being moved, we are again speaking of changes that are going to be happening in the earth and the rule in the earth. Isaiah speaks this way in chapter 34, verse 4. It says, Then all the hosts of heaven will dissolve and the skies will be rolled up like a scroll, so all their array will wither away like a leaf dropping from the vine, like figs shriveling from the fig tree. Yeah, and so what we're seeing here is the same thing that we just read in Revelation. The instruction of God for the rule of the land is written on a scroll, right? We take it out every week. He gave that to Israel, the laws for the land for Israel so they could dwell together in community. And it's really the same thing we're seeing in this scroll. But this is the way the world has lived. It's been the instruction of the adversary of God and it's being rolled up like a scroll. It's coming to an end. And Habakkuk gives us an idea of what this scroll being rolled up would be. It says this, He stood and the earth shook. He looked and startled the nations. The ancient mountains were shattered. The hills of antiquity sank down. His ways are everlasting. Okay, so here he speaks of gods and governments as mountains and hills. And after that, after they're shattered and after they're sunk down, it says Adonai's ways, his ways, Adonai's ways are everlasting. We see in the scroll being rolled up and the mountains and the hills being made low, the meaning that we are returning to Adonai's ways. And where do we find Adonai's ways? We find them in the scrolls in the ark, right? They're God's ways. When we read of the scrolls of God, we're reading of the laws of the land. And when we read of the scrolls of this age being rolled up, they're speaking of the waves of the rulers of this age coming to an end. I want you to imagine for a moment a scroll being rolled up, what it would symbolize. Well, we know it as the end of the reading, right? When we're done reading the scroll, what do we do each week? We roll it up, put it back in the ark. And within that scroll is the instruction of God for his people. And at the end of the reading of the law, when we're finished, it gets rolled up and put back in the ark. Well, the symbolism here is much the same. We're reading of the end of the laws of this age. Things of this age are coming to an end. Some of the things that we spoke of that plagued the churches, they're coming to an end. The scroll is being rolled up and the rulers of this age and those who followed them are coming to an end. Psalm 97 says this, Mountains melt like wax at the presence of Adonai, at the presence of the Lord of all the earth. And so here again, he speaks of the high places of worship and the governments as well. And in the presence of Adonai, all the earth, all of those things melt away. The book of Enoch says much the same thing in chapter 1, verse 5. And all shall be smitten with fear, and the watchers shall quake, and great fear and trembling shall seize them unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken, and the hills shall be made low, 
and shall melt like wax before the flame, and the earth shall be wholly rent asunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish, and there shall be judgment upon all men. And so this is what we're seeing here in these verses. And in verses 15 and 16, which we'll read in a minute, it speaks of the skies being rolled up like a scroll, the scroll being the ways of this present evil age, some of those things that we've spoken about when we looked at the churches. Ancient mountains and hills of antiquity describe two things. First, they can be governments. They can refer to high places of worship. Anciently, each country, city, or government had gods. And we saw that when we looked at the churches. John, when speaking to the church's problems, they had pagan forms of worship. And then we looked at how those forms of worship were sanctioned by those governments of those cities. And we also spoke of how those gods and goddesses are actually demons. They're actually spirits. The goddess's worship was filled with promiscuity, temple prostitutes, and so forth. And then we have the demon Molech, and he gives a solution to the result of all this promiscuity, the killing of infants. And we see both of these alive and well in our country today. We spoke of how the promiscuity of the 60s that was unleashed in the 60s and 70s led to unwanted children. And the solution again for the promiscuity was legalizing abortion in 1973. In these two things, we find that the spirits are still alive and well. The same spirits that ruled back then are alive and well among us today. And these verses speak of those things all coming to an end. The spirits behind them coming to an end. The rule of Messiah being established in the earth. So understand that we're looking at the structure, actually, of this apocalypse that we're going to be reading about as we go on, as a whole. This is what the result is going to be. This is a, the result of what is to come. And the scene depicts figuratively the inauguration of the last judgment. The legal pronouncement and execution of this judgment is implicit in that it's expected. Listen to verses 15 and 16, and we'll see the same thing again, repeated in just a different way. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the military commanders, the rich, the mighty, and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they tell the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come who is able to stand. And so again, we're seeing the same thing here. The rulers of the present evil age are coming to an end. They're hiding among the rocks and the caves and the peoples under their rules are asking for protection. They're asking for the mountains or their gods and governments to help them. And Isaiah speaks of this in the same way. In Isaiah chapter 2, he says, So humanity bows down as each one lowers himself. Pardon them not. Enter into the rock, hide in the dust, for fear of Adonai and the glory of his majesty. The man of haughty eyes is humbled, the lofty ones brought low, for Adonai alone will be exalted in that day. And again, we find Isaiah writes of the end in the same way. Everything, everyone is being brought low. Everything is being turned upside down. And we can look at Yeshua saying, the first 
in this age are becoming the last. The proud and the haughty of this age are being brought low. And gods of this age are being shown not to be gods at all. And Adonai is being exalted in the earth. Matthew speaks of it. It says in chapter 24, But immediately after the trouble of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a great shofar, and they will gather together his chosen from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And so again, we find in these words of Yeshua those things, same things, the sun darkened, stars falling, moon not giving its light, all refer to the powers that be are coming to an end, and Adonai's rule is coming into the earth on the clouds of heaven with the Son of Man. The sun, the moon, and stars, again, they were things that were worshipped, and they were things that people looked for direction. And so again, what we're seeing is there's a change coming in the rule of this present evil age is coming to an end. And we covered chapter 7 well last week, And so I'm going to continue on with chapter 8 tonight. We'll skip over chapter 7. It was about, remember, about um, the ceiling of the 144,000. Okay, and things are going to change focus now. We're actually going to begin to get to some of the specifics of the start of the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is where, I guess you could say it gets good because things are going to really be coming to an end. It's where God begins to judge And he begins to warn the earth of the coming wrath. And now we're moving into what we traditionally think of as the tribulation. But it's more uh, biblically accurate to call it maybe the birth pains of the Messiah. Revelation chapter 8 verse 1. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And so again, the scroll can now be opened. And once it's opened, judgment can begin. The court would be in session and there's silence in heaven. Everyone and everything is waiting for the judge to speak. And we find this same thing in the book of Daniel chapter 7. It says, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. The river of life was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. So the court is seated, the books are open, and the king, the judge, is about to begin the judgments of God. We're about to see the judgments of God. Then in verse 2 it says, And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now these seven angels before the throne of God are spoken of in other writings. In the book of Enoch, we learn of six of them. And I'll just read it quickly for you so that you can see these angels. And these are the names of the holy angels who watch. Suruel, one of the holy angels of eternity and trembling. Raphael, one of the holy angels, for he is of the spirits of man. Raguel, one of the holy angels who take vengeance for the world and for the luminaries. Michael, 
one of the holy angels, for he is obedient in his benevolence over the people and the nations. Sarachel, one of the holy angels who are set over the spirits of mankind who sin in the spirit. And Gabriel, one of the holy angels who oversee the Garden of Eden, the serpents in the Caribbean. And so these are the names given to these angels. And they're given seven shofars, seven shofarot, not trumpets as we think of trumpets, but ram's horns to sound. And as I said, the blast of the ram horns is the blast of alarm. It's a wake-up call. They use silver trumpets in the temple, but the watchmen on the walls would use ram's horns. It's a ram's horn blast, according to tradition, that is going to awaken the dead at the last trump. Let's look at this word for shofar blast, and it's going to tell us the purpose of these trumpet blasts. The word for this sounding is teruah, and it means alarm, a signal, a shout, a blast of war, or an alarm or joy. It can mean a lot of things. Trumpets are sounded at battles. They're sound to wake the city. If the watchman on the wall saw something, an impending attack or something, they would wake the city. The shofar is to alert those, wake them up. In the same way, these trumpet blasts are to warn people and tell people that the judgment of God is coming soon, to warn them to turn back to God before the wrath of God is poured out. And these things that are going to happen before the final judgment, because, you know, God is merciful, and he's giving the inhabitants of the earth that haven't turned to him these trumpet soundings as a wake-up call, telling them to turn to God and be saved. The first four soundings will be less severe than the last three. As the plagues in Egypt grew in intensity, these are going to grow in intensity as well. And as I've spoken of before, they are particularly the first four going to sound very much like the plagues upon Egypt. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. And now, we should look at some temple imagery here. Uh, remember, we established that the tabernacle and the temples were actually heavenly copies. And so, looking at the altar of incense in the temple, we can get an idea of what's going on here. This is the altar of incense, and this is where the daily prayers would be offered. Every morning and evening and in the temple, with those prayers was also offered incense. So what we see is that incense is associated with the prayers of God's people. Those prayers are as incense before him, a sweet savor to him. And notice that the altar has horns. Horns in scripture are always symbolic of power. And the teaching here is that prayer is a sweet savor to God. It's a pleasant aroma to him. And that there's also power in prayer, in the prayers of the righteous. Remember what James tells us in chapter 5. He says the prayer of the righteous person is powerful. It avails much. And here with this angel, we begin to see just how powerful prayer is. We're beginning to see the results of the prayers that have been offered. 
And remember, one of the things that we have seen is that the righteous have been crying out to God from beneath the altar. Even after their death, their blood continues to cry out for vindication. And so the prayers of the righteous and the prayers of the martyrs rise up together before God. And we find this throughout Jewish writings. I just pulled one from Exodus Rabbah. And it says, what is the meaning of thou that hearest prayer? Rabbi Pinchas said, when the people of Israel pray, you do not find them all praying at the same time, but each assembly prays separately. The first one, then another. And when they all have finished, the angel appointed over the prayers, collects all the prayers that have been offered and all the synagogues, weaves them into garlands and places them upon the head of God. And so we see how important prayers are and they were important and they are important. And these prayers are of 6,000 years that have come up before God. And we spoke of these prayers before they are for vindication and for God to sanctify his name. So when I say vindication, it doesn't mean that they're praying, oh God, I've been crying out, take vengeance upon this person. That's not what they're crying out about. So what is crying out to God for vindication? Well, I want to put it to you another way. Let's take our prayers. And if we forget all the prayers of personal petition, things like I need this or that or help me with this or that, forget all of those. What two things do you suppose are the most frequent prayers to God? Would you say that the return of the Messiah and the rule of God on earth would be one of those prayers that would be offered? Or would you think that the salvation of the lost, maybe family members who aren't walking with God, those lost in other countries, would you think that that would be another of the top prayers rising before God? Well, with that in mind, let's see what happens. Verse 5, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquake. And so what we see is that God is answering the prayers of vindication of the righteous, sanctifying his name in the world, and the judgments of God are about to begin. And notice that we have the earthquake, and so again, the present foundations and the rule of the earth are shaken. And this is what we're seeing, that God is really sanctifying his name, or we could say he's establishing his rule on the earth. For the judgment of God to begin, the rule and the power and the authority of God has to come into the age. And these are things that are associated with God establishing his rule on earth. Do you remember my favorite verse from Ecclesiastes? That which has been is that which shall be. That which has been done is that which shall be done. Well, we find another instance of God establishing his kingdom on earth in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. God is taking for himself a kingdom of people and he's establishing his kingdom in the earth. And it says this, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Adonai descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. The sound of the shofar grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered. And so what we see that angel is actually hurling into the earth is the authority of God. 
And this is not natural earthquakes, lightning and thunder. This is the rule of God coming into the earth. And with it will come an appeal for the sinners to wake up, to follow God. And after the warnings, after the trumpet warnings, there's going to be a final judgment. And so this is absolutely what I think would have come to John's mind. You see, if I were a futurist, I would have to identify each of these things. And so the earthquake becomes California falling into the sea or something like that. But you see, I want to identify what John would have thought. What would have come to John's mind and the first century believers who read this book, what would have come to their minds as they read this book? And it never ceases to amaze me that people try to interpret this book and all of Scripture, really, without looking to the Jewish thought of the first century and to the writings of our Jewish people of the first century. That's who these writings were given to. This book was given to a first century Jew, first century Jewish people and non-Jews who sat under the teachings of our Jewish people. You know, John is not a Christian like we think of Christians. He's a first century Jew who believes Yeshua is the Messiah. And if you want to understand the symbolism, then we have to look back into the mind of that first century Jew. His mind is full of temple imagery. His mind is full of festival pageantry, festival imagery in Scripture. His mind is full of the Tanakh, what we erroneously call the Old Testament, and Jewish tradition, and other books like Enoch and the Targumim. We have to understand these things if we're going to understand what God is trying to get across to John because God is going to speak to him, give him visions that he can understand. And so in the censer, we see the prayers of the righteous for the rule of God and the prayers of the people for vindication being answered. And that's what's being hurled into the earth. And that is what we see begin happening next. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. They're going to sound a wake-up call with the trumpets before the wrath of God is poured out. This is actually God pleading with the people of the world to wake up and turn to him. Remember what Yeshua said. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here we see in the warnings, in these trumpet calls, we see the love of God that none should perish, none should be lost. And so he's trying to wake them up and turn them to him. Remember my favorite verse again? That which has been is that which shall be. Well, we get a picture of this in the days of Noah. And we read in chapter 7, verse 1. And then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now... I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And so what does God do? He gives seven more days for the people to come to their senses, to repent, and join Noah on the ark. The doors of the ark don't close for seven days. Seven days, and then the flood. Seven trumpets, and then the wrath. Can anyone think of another biblical picture of these seven trumpets that's even more representative of what's happening here? Anybody? Well, let's see what we can find in the story of Jericho. 
They walked around the walls and sounded trumpets for seven days and then destruction comes. Let's read it because this is a good story. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have the priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in the front of the ark. And so we have priests carrying trumpets and we have the army surrounding the city. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times and with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them, Sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. And so we have seven trumpet blasts and then the judgment of God, the walls of the city crumble. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. We're going to have seven trumpet calls and the rule of the adversary and his kingdom is going to crumble and we could even equate this loud shout of the Israelites with the prayers of the righteous being answered in Revelations. So let's begin to look at these trumpet calls. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail mixed with fire, with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned, and all of the green grass was burned up. Now remember, a couple of weeks ago, I said we could find the key to understanding the book of Revelation if we looked at the exodus from Egypt. The story of the exodus of the Jewish people from the rule of the adversary. And we're going to see that he's going to lead his people out and keep them from the adversary of God in chapter 12. He's going to take them to a place prepared for them in the wilderness by God, just as in the exodus from Pharaoh. And so these trumpet soundings are all going to resemble another instance in history when God tried to wake some people up, and that was in Egypt. The idea of the plagues would happen again at the end of days, and we can find this in Judaism, spoken of over and over. You can find it in the Passover Seder. But I pulled this one up from Midrash Rabbah. Behold, tomorrow... About this time, I will cause it to rain heavy and grievous hail, such as not has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. However, there will be one like it in the time to come, when in the days of Gog and Magog, as it is written, a torrential rain, great hailstones, fire and sulfur. So the point I want to make here is the rabbi saw the first exodus as a shadow of God saving his people in the future. And what we're going to see is these plagues are going to, these trumpet calls are going to resemble the Exodus. So what we have here is some major disasters that are going to affect the earth. And the futurist, again, he's going to have to identify these disasters. But again, that's not important. What is important is that at the start of the day of the Lord, God in his mercy is going to warn the people of the earth but because they do not listen to reason and because they do not believe his word or his Messiah, he's going to send some major disasters to wake them up. And that will affect one third of the earth. And it's going to cause famine. It's going to cause disease and hardship to the people on the earth, just as he did in Egypt. Verse 8 says, And the second angel sounded his trumpet, 
and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned to blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships of the sea were destroyed. And so another major disaster here, and a third of the oceans of sea are going to be affected, and it's going to be a major hardship on the people of the earth. The third of what's in the sea is going to be destroyed. And again, if I were a futurist, I would be identifying these things. I would say, oh, it's a meteor. Oh, it's an atomic bomb. But that's not important. What is important is the enormity of the event, that a third of the earth and the seas are going to be devastated. And all this to tell the people, wake up, because the end is near. And you should take note that the fish in the Nile died as God turned the Nile to blood. And so we're seeing some of the same things here. And then in verse 10, it says, The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, like a blazing torch, fell from the sky, and a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood, and a third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters becoming bitter. And so we have a third of the world's water supply destroyed. I hate to tell you this, but we have a great amount of the world's water supply in this country called the Great Lakes. I think I've read somewhere that Lake Superior, I think, alone has one-fifth or so of the world's fresh water. So anyway, may not be fresh water for long. <laughs> it may be bitter. And Proverbs speaks of wormwood as bitter as well. Proverbs 5, 4, it says, But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a double-edged sword. And Lamentation says, he has filled me with bitterness and made me drink wormwood. Okay, so we should all note that this is the first plague where we have some people actually die. What we've read before this is people are just troubled. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark and a third of the day was without light, also a third of the night. And what's important is what we see here is a third of creation is going to be affected by some of these major disasters. And I believe they will think of them, what do they think of what God did in the past? They look at it and they try and think of natural disasters that represented what God did. And that's what they're going to think of these, natural disasters. However, what we're going to find as we read on, there are going to be two witnesses prophesying in the temple. And they're going to be calling these things down. And they're going to be saying, tomorrow God is going to do this. And this is going to happen. And so there'll be no excuse. They're going to know who's bringing these things about. And notice something else about these disasters. Just as in Egypt, the people weren't killed by the disasters. We see the people not being killed by these disasters, but they're making them very uncomfortable. And yes, some are going to die of hunger and thirst, but not like what's coming. Also note, we had a plague of darkness in Egypt, and we see darkness here in Revelation. And we also see all the things spoken of in chapter 6, which we read earlier, remember? They're all coming to be here. They're all happening here. Now understand that the initial plagues of Egypt were plagues against the gods of Egypt. They were plagues that would make people very uncomfortable. They were plagues that were designed to cause hardship. Their water, even their water, their drinking water, their jugs were fouled and turned to blood. Even the water in their jugs turned to blood. 
Locusts that destroyed crops causing hunger. Disease that destroyed livestock. Things that plagued the people of Egypt but didn't kill. They were things which were designed to cause the people of Egypt hardship in order that they would let God's people go. And not only that, the same thing that started the exodus from Egypt is the same thing that starts this. Remember what started it? The prayers of the righteous. And what started the plagues in Egypt? The Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. It was the prayers of the people then crying out, and it's the prayers of the people here crying out to God as well. Now remember, what finally befell Egypt after all of the warnings was death. The plagues became more severe until they brought death and not just discomfort. And that's what we're going to find when we get to some of the rest of these trumpets. They will now begin to affect man. And as we go into chapter 9, the blast will begin to affect men directly, to kill men directly. And that's what we're going to see in the last of the chapter 8. It's warned about in verse 13, the last verse. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. And so the woes are about to be released and the eagle, some texts say an angel, some texts say an eagle, some bird of carrion that eats carrion. And men are about to begin to die by the plagues of God, just as in Egypt. Something else to keep in mind. The plagues in Egypt did not affect the people of God. The people of God were in the land of Goshen. They were being taken care of. And what we're going to see next week in chapter 9 is that the torment and the death is released again, and it's to make men repent, but it won't be upon the righteous. In Egypt, a number of Egyptians did repent, and left with Israel, but not a great number. And I believe we'll see the same thing here because the time of the Gentiles is over at this time. The great multitude from the nations has already come in, but there'll still be some that will repent, but not many, as we'll see when we read on. So we see that trumpets five and six are trouble for the sinners and the wicked, and then the seventh trumpet will begin the bowls of the wrath of God. It would be a good time to look over the difference between the peoples of the earth as it was understood in the first century. We looked at this verse in Daniel. I want to read it again. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing. Coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attended him, Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. So what would this have meant to a first century Jew? Well, the rabbis taught that three books are opened. If we look at a tradition that was first written by Rabbi Shammai, so it was definitely a first century rabbi, we're going to find much the same thing. And this is what it says. It has been taught by Beth Shammai, the house of Shammai, Say, there will be three groups at the day of judgment. One of the thoroughly righteous, 
one of the thoroughly wicked, and one of the intermediate or ordinary sinner. The thoroughly righteous will forthwith be inscribed definitively as entitled to everlasting life. The thoroughly wicked will forthwith be inscribed definitively as doomed to Gehenna, as it says, and many of them that sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to reproaches and everlasting abhorrence. The intermediate will go down to Gehenna. Later, Rabbi Yohanan, who was at the school of Shammai, added that the intermediate will be given the time between Rosh Hashanah and the end judgment to repent. And so what we have in the book of Revelation, on the earth at this time, we have that very same thing. We see those who are sealed by God. They're sealed by the Spirit of God until the day of redemption. We have in the story of the Exodus, Israel, our Jewish people, and the Egyptians who attached themselves to Israel are saved. We have the totally wicked. They're the diehard followers of this present evil age. They're unrepentant. In the story of the Exodus, we would equate them to the Egyptians who, like Pharaoh, hardened their hearts to his soldiers who died in the sea with him, did not repent. And in this instance, it's going to be most of the population of the world. And we have the sinners. They're not wicked folks, but they're just sinners. And they're still given a chance to repent. Those who do, who respond to the trumpet call before the day of judgment, before the wrath of God is poured out, will be sealed with the righteous. And those who don't will be sealed with the wicked. And so at this time, we have those three people groups on the earth. God is sounding the trumpets, trying to get the group of sinners to repent before they're swept away with the wicked. And next week, we're going to look a little more at chapter 8, and we're going to begin with chapter 9, and that's when the trouble really begins.